Hi, you're listening to Coffee with the Sarlos. My name is Kelly Sarlo. And I'm Karen Sarlo. We are a mother-daughter duo, and we have sat down together with the intention of creating podcasts, not only for our clients, but people who have been inquiring about the types of things that we do. Um, we're two very, I'll say, quirky um, people, and we just wanted to be able to sit down in an informal setting where we can just have conversations like we do in our living room, and but bring them to a wider group of people. So we're sitting in our office. We have purchased our own equipment so that we have control over uh, the process that this goes through to reach you so that it is unfiltered. And um, I'll say just pure form in Kelly and I sharing things with you, stories about what we've gone through or what other people have shared with us. And we hope you enjoy them. We hope you learn something from them that can make your life um, change in some way that helps you so that you enjoy life or really stress, um, get an answer, get closure, let something go or someone go. Um, so that life is seen through, I'll say, a different set of eyes uh, where joy in, in some aspect can come forward for you. And I think also one of our biggest intentions is to create um, connections for you as well so that you feel hopefully connected to us through um, whether it's our humor um, or the stories itself and the content um, or that you find people who have commented on the videos who are listening to them as well and you find a wider community uh, so that you feel supported in your journey, whatever that means for you. I also hope that you learn about your own gifts in this process and that you figure out who you are. And that when you hear some of our stories, whether they're good or difficult, that you somehow connect to the fact that your life can be good and difficult um, at the same time. And that that isn't always a bad thing. Sometimes it sucks. But maybe when you hear us talk about it, too, you might just feel like having coffee with us in our basement or, or on our deck is something that uh, you look forward to. Um, oh, I'm excited. Okay, so we could we could wish wonderful things for you all day, but uh, we're going to get started <laughs> and start to kind of talk about or introduce, I'll say, each one of our stories. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. Um, just to describe kind of where we've been, what we've been through um, that has got us here today. Am I going to start? Yeah, I've, I've always said my story doesn't make sense without you. So I'm Karen and I'm the mom. <laughs> And um, uh, my story begins in childhood with growing up in a funeral home. So I'm going to say that I'm a medium and that I, as a medium, were able to see spirits um, who've crossed over first in the form of people. And later in my life, pets came in and other animals that are not necessarily pets, like, you know, the deer and the moose and stuff like that. Um but that beginning in a funeral home was created in a family with Catholicism, with a mom and a dad, uh, a grandmother, eight brothers and sisters, five brothers and three sisters, no pets other than a turtle. Okay, and let's back up here because you just kind of threw out like the funeral home like it was so nonchalant and that's definitely not everyone's story. So. Can we kind of back up and introduce the fact that you grew up there because it's a family business? Oh, yes. My dad owned it. Okay. And um, uh, my maiden name is McGinty. And in our little town here in North Bay, Ontario, Canada, 
um, my dad owned the Catholic funeral home. So there was a Catholic one and a Protestant one. And I think lots of people in little communities all over North America can understand those little two funeral homes in each community and how interwoven those families are to get to know every single family in those little towns or cities. Um, my dad was really involved in the church and my parents had raised nine children. Um, we slept at the funeral home. We ate our lunches there, uh, which I don't know if was normal or not normal for other <laughs> families that own funeral homes. But well, And you, you also told me that you didn't just eat together. You ate with the coroners and the police officers. Yes, that's true. The <laughs> as, se- as seven-year-olds. Yes. I'm going to say not normal. <laughs> that's okay. fair. Yeah. Okay. It, it could be fair. Um, yeah, we did because the embalming room, which was also the morgue for the city, the two funeral homes had the morgues were right in the funeral homes. And back in that day, there was Martin Funeral Home, Panabecker Funeral Home, uh, which were Protestant and McGinty's. And so the coroners had to come and the police officers had to come right into the funeral home to do those autopsies. So quite often, as children eating our lunch in the lunchroom, um, well, maybe not all families had their, <laughs> a lunchroom in the funeral home where you brought your kids. But anyway, I guess with nine kids at home, my mom wanted my dad to feed us <laughs> so she could, you know, clean the house and do the laundry and all of that and take care of her mother. Mm-hmm. So anyway, at the funeral home, it was very common for us to eat with the, the doctors and the, um, uh, the police officers who would come in. And um, that we would get to know these people very well growing up. And also, I worked there from the time I was 12 years old until I was 20. Right. So that's kind of the perfect segue to to talk about why um, the funeral home is such an important piece in you um, developing these gifts or becoming a medium, right? Yeah, that's true. There there were um, lots of instances, I think particularly with my dad, who has since died, passed in 2001, as you know, um, that growing up Catholic was part of the reason that I wasn't allowed to share the gifts in my community, in my family. I'm not saying in all mediums, family, families where Catholicism was present, but that was my history, Mm -hmm. that the church here said that wasn't something um, that was permitted. And also that the psychiatric community in this community um, would condone. My dad took me to see a psychiatrist and that um, was something that was not allowed. So from the time I was very small, this wasn't something that could be talked about, acknowledged, um, nourished, or taught. You're referring to your ability to talk to people who've crossed over talk to them, see them, uh, smell things that they would give me as messages, hear, um, feel, um, all of the gifts because I use all six of the gifts. So it wasn't just clairvoyance, the ability to see that was shut down. It was all six senses for me that were shut down. Mm-hmm. That's important. I think a lot of people can connect with being shut down. Oh yeah. And that can be a whole other podcast, I suppose. Um, so and, and I'm, I'm finding it interesting because we, you and I have always referred to them as gifts, but I'm going to assume that at that age that you're talking about right now, that's not how you referred to them. Oh my God, no. So um, talk to me more about the funeral home and, and how your first experiences started. 
because I think that's what people are going to connect to, right? So, you know, substitute funeral home for whatever, wherever they were in their life when they started discovering their quote-unquote gifts. Mm-hmm. Um, in a Catholic funeral home, you have kneel- kneelers at the front, <laughs> of the yeah. ca- right in front of the casket where people would come in and kneel um, in front of the person who's passed away with a casket open or closed. But, to kiss mm, them. Well, yes, sometimes. <laughs> that's what my, yeah, that's oh. happened in my own family. Um, but you, we would kneel. And so I would always see the chest rising and falling like they're breathing. Now, remember, I'm a little kid. And I remember telling my dad that I could see the chest rising and falling. And he, so he said, no. And he showed me how you embalm them. And uh, that, oh. And how old are you? Seven. Watching an embalming happen. Well, no, I'm not, I'm not yeah. picking on him. I think that's incredible. Yeah. Because he what, tried to educate me. Yes. And that's, that's what I was going to say. And he tried to remove a fear. I think that he thought I would have mm-hmm. in that process of seeing a person who's dead breathing. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Kelly. Yeah, I, I think it's great. Yeah, we don't do that anymore. We don't educate with, um, I'll say that kind of practicality to to really illustrate each part of the process. We just want them to grasp a concept instead of, um, like I said, illustrating. And I think also what you just showed me too is a great way for me to recognize that my dad loved me. Mm-hmm. And that in his attempt to love me, um, and to educate me, to make me feel safe, he shut down a gift. And I think that is important for people to hear. And, and and not necessarily out of that intention, but for him to maybe maybe react to it and say, okay, if this is a fear, I can help. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and approach it from that kind of perspective of, I'll walk her through it so that she feels comfortable. Because um, you were frightened at that time, were you not? I don't know that I was actually frightened to begin with. I think it was like, questioning okay and asking why they're still breathing after they're dead because at that age you of course you don't really understand dead mm-hmm. and when you can see them all say sitting up in the casket even though they're laying down it's hard to describe this but that they would also then get up and as that my dad and I are walking away from the casket that I can see them still walking behind me and of course the body's still in the casket so how do you explain to a child or even to another full-grown adult who doesn't believe in this, that what you're seeing is real unless you are able to actually get affirmations that it is by knowingly, by having facts about that person. Now, all of this, of course, comes later in my life, mm-hmm. but we're backing this up to the, to the fact that there's a child experiencing this, mm-hmm. which makes me think about a lot of my clients who come in and say, you know, at the breakfast table, my my two-year-old keeps talking to their grandma and my grandma's dead. Mm-hmm. So what the hell is going on that my two-year-old is saying Nana's behind her? And how would she know Nana's name is Nana and not yeah. grandma? So I, I guess what I'm trying to speak to today, too, is the fact that we are presented with this, whether we like it or not. Mm-hmm. And not all of, and I think our, our media does a great disservice in movies and educating people to teach us how to approach that. And that's one of the reasons why, of course, you and I are sitting here doing this. Mm-hmm. It's because I've, many people have gone through it and are still going through it. And yes, there's a dog barking. Okay, and so that would be Parker. <laughs> and Parker is our golden, or pardon me, Labradoodle, ginger-colored Labradoodle that we hope you're going to hear lots about in our show. And you probably are going to hear him bark. 
We love him to bits, and he's Kelly's dog. He's, he's the third member of our team. Yes. So Kelly and I live together. We've deviated a little bit because we know you can hear a dog barking. <laughs> and we want you to know that that's... that's uh, well, th- that's part of being in our home, having the conversation with us. Yeah. And we hope you guys get to know about Parker, too. So anyway, so let's keep going. Let's go back to the funeral home, because mm-hmm. for me, um, being your daughter, some of my favorite stories... Uh, that you've shared with me have been about your childhood and mm. about what you've gone through. So like, okay. I, I, <laughs> I get anxious and excited for you to start sharing them because, um, well, because of how I connected to them doing the same thing as you, but also because I've been able to watch our clients and, and good friends as well light up when they mm. hear the stories. Okay. So even though I don't get to see all of you light up, um, th- just that feeling is, yeah. is kind of what I... Yeah. Grave. Well, and you know what? When I think back to my dad, um, just showing me how, like an embalming. When I think back over the years, like in high school, to seeing different things that would happen during an autopsy, and that I was only in high school for stuff like that, that it was really a science classroom that came alive for me. Mm-hmm. And and not that I'm I'm saying to teachers out there, run out <laughs> go to a funeral home. <laughs> But it was my education in my family and that there would be doctors who would say that they or chiropractors that say, you know, but I, I helped my child learn science too. I get that, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So I don't know. It's just a great connection that you can have, I'll say, uh, a mixture of education Mm -hmm. and that it's not all in a traditional class. Well, and, and um, just to kind of compliment that, I think you, you've talked a lot about, um, Oh my God, it's so many years uh, of how your dad approached families when he had to go into their homes to, whether it was to get the information about the obituary, whether it was to talk about uh, what they wanted done at a service or how they wanted the body dealt with, um, how he approached humans and that love and compassion, which I love hearing about because it's, it's my grandfather. Um, and, and to see that light in your eyes, mm-hmm. um, and, and how now I've got to watch you talk about him, but also to carry that into your own practice oh, because yeah. what we do is sensitive in a much different, but very similar way. I'll say, um, uh, yeah, you talk about an education and how much you've learned and then been able to implement in your own practice years later. The most important thing my dad ever told me or taught me by example and by how he instructed me as an employee was respect Mm -hmm. the the tremendous amount of respect he had for the person who'd passed away in how he cleaned the body how he did everything during the embalming dressing them their hair their makeup every single little detail he did how he checked in with the family over and over again every day of the wake he would come back in he would want the makeup redone if he had to touch something up if he had to move the hair if he had to well and it was also pardon me but it was also he would check in with the family to say is this how she would have done it or oh, how yes. he would have had his hair oh um, yes to, to keep it consistent yeah and I, and I kind of want to interject here which is different for us because we don't interrupt each other normally <laughs> um is your mom too because she mm-hmm. is a very kind of rough around the edges with everything else in her life but you've talked about because she used to go in and do the makeup and the hair mm-hmm. and how gentle she was oh, and how yes. patient and um, slow she would she would work to get everything just right. Oh, um, yeah. Going along the lines of the, the respect that you were just talking about. about oh, you know, my mom and dad had a beautiful partnership in that regard of um, that they had a common goal um, to 
be respectful of the person who'd passed away, but also of the family members and their process of grieving. And that that didn't begin at the funeral home, but it certainly was one of the beginning places. And it would have to begin with where the person passes Mm -hmm. and where they are at the time they hear it. But they knew that the funeral home piece was something that gets held in the memory. And how important it is that the funeral directors and the, and the staff and how they are emotionally connected to the family. And that is something that I bring forward in every single treatment, mm-hmm. whether we're channeling for a group, but that the connection to that person and their needs and how they feel. So the feelings, the conne- that, that was the first thing my parents taught me were connections. And of course, growing up with eight brothers and sisters and my mamer living in my home, Um, And having this big family and big extended family around it. And then this Catholic community uh, and this small community of North Bay was so, so important about people's feelings. And it is to this very day. That's my biggest thing. Mm -hmm. But anyway, a story. You asked about a story. Yeah, um, any one of them, really. So going back into kind of the scene where you were um, a kid in the funeral home. Um, cause I, I, I know that the work comes later when you get into your teens. Um, can you talk a little bit about when mm-hmm. you were saying that you saw them in the casket, much like you were talking mm-hmm. about kneeling in front of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would talk yeah. to me there. They, they, they would be in the casket and talk to me and get, and say things to me and ask me if I would do things like, could you tell my mom, remember a little redhead girl, uh, with pigtails, she had died. She was my age. And, um, which again, if you think about that, Mm -hmm. uh, the, the impact of seeing someone your own age dead. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, they're spared alive trying to talk to you to say, could you tell my mom I'm okay? And the fact that of course I'm going to, of course you're going to tell her, (laughs) of course I'm going to tell her mom Mm -hmm. she's okay. Like that's the first thing you would think of as a little kid. Yeah. Uh, You don't question shit like that. You just think, of course I'm going to tell your mom. Because that's what kids would do for each other. Mm-hmm. And we wouldn't want our mummies worried about us. Yeah. So my instinct would be to, well, of course I'm going to tell your mommy you're okay. Point her out. Yes. <laughs> and and how would I ever know which one is her mom mm-hmm. amongst a whole bunch of people coming into the funeral home? But I would know. But I'm not allowed to. Because why? Because I'm told by adults that this isn't real. Okay. So now I'm just going to back it up because... It- you're kind of making assumptions that they know what the things that I know. Mm. Um, so at this point, if she's asking you to um, relay a message, have you already gone up to your father or someone and said, you know, I'm, I'm being asked to do this? Or I would say to my dad, um, Daddy, I have to tell her mommy that she's okay. And because I verbalized that, my dad would say no. Okay, so you're communicating at this point. I'm communicating. Verbally to a human. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Verbally to a human being that I have to say this for this little girl upon which my dad would say no. So there's the block. There's the no. The confusion. The Yes. Yeah. Okay. Because at seven years old, you would never understand why you are not allowed to tell somebody's right. mommy that this little girl is okay. No matter what okay means, because you don't even, you're not even asking what okay actually means. You're just wanting to give the message. Mm-hmm. So mommy doesn't worry that her seven-year-old little girl is alone or scared or whatever. It's your instinct. Mm -hmm. And so that instinct has to be pushed down. Mm -hmm. Your instinct to care for another, your instinct to communicate, your instinct to believe yourself, 
your instinct to nurture, to problem solve. This is interesting because as you're listing all these things, I'm wondering how each individual uh, will connect to um, the things that you're saying. Mm-hmm. So because they, they might be just having the one track mind of, okay, as a medium, but you can insert as a mother, you can insert as a wife, as, as a boss, um, as an employee to shut down all of those instincts because the instincts don't just, um, yeah, relate to one situation. That's right. And now try and come out into a school system that says you're supposed to have a thought process. They want you to have processes and proof. And proof, but you've got to shut it down, mm-hmm. and then they're going to grade you and pass you based on the fact that you should be able to. Or horribly fail you. Yeah. <laughs> or, hor- yes. <laughs> yeah, we've been give, there. Give you the C. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or the D, whatever. That was a chair. No one farted. Let's just be clear. Oh, yes. I moved <laughs> my ass in my chair. Um, so anyway, yes. Yeah, so you, you get tossed into a school system that says to do one thing, and then exactly when you are doing that thing... Um, you're told, no, you're not allowed to, and that you're never to even speak of it again. So it's con- you're in conflict. So if you're sitting at home thinking, wow, maybe this explains the whole, I always have my head going round in circles, or how come my head is so full, or why am I depressed, or why am I stressed? This explains part of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually in the kid's mind when you're saying that, thinking... Um, or I guess the parents as well, when you watch a kid, um, I'll say try and defy authority um, because it's the child in all of us that can hear through those instincts whether or not the adult's lying, whether or not they're just telling us something to keep us in our place. Um, so when the kids constantly resist us, it's because they're they're following that instinct. Mm-hmm. And I think your partner could be doing it in 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 a marriage or or a friendship and you're still doing it to them okay let's stop (laughs) let's go back to our story because this is exciting and I want to talk more about this on separate occasions um because I think school system is probably a series that we could probably do um but let's go back to your stories if you don't mind Mm -hmm. um so you've talked a little bit about when you were I'll say young and not just at the working age quite yet Mm um but uh, was it 16 that you went into the funeral home to start working or was it younger? 12. Oh, good God. Okay. So, you know, <laughs> that's not legal. <laughs> <laughs> when you own a family yeah. business, everybody out there that owns yeah. a family business will say, who cares yeah, no, what's I'm legal? Just, I'm kidding. Yeah. So, okay. So you were... We slept there. You're number six. Oh, yes. In nine yes. children. Okay. So you've got your three younger siblings because you've talked about your nine being kind of divided into two families based on the age differences. Yes. Yeah? Um, so the older five are kind of off doing their own thing at this point and you were working and had the three younger ones to sort of look after as well. Yeah. And I should also say, Kelly, that I'm, I'm 53 years old so that people, when they're listening to this, if they're related in that age kind of a thing that they can okay. kind of place themselves. I don't know why I felt that important. (laughs) You look great for 53. (laughs) Um, Okay, so you start working at the funeral home. Um, Wait, can I go? Oh, yeah. yeah. No, go anywhere. I I was just going to say that one of the things that we loved doing at the funeral home uh, was sleeping there. And that we liked going there on hot summer nights because way back in the 1970s (laughs) and the late 60s, 
Um, there was no air conditioning. Maybe you mentioned 53 so you'd be comfortable talking about the 70s. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> okay. Um, but I mean, it was, it's relative. Yeah. There was, the places weren't air conditioned. Homes weren't. Mm-hmm. So there was a very rare building that was, and the funeral home was. Mm-hmm. So on hot summer nights, uh, we would go over to the funeral home because we lived three doors down in a house. And um, a, 13 people in a house, very small, three bedroom house. And so we'd go over to the funeral home and we'd bring a pillow and a blanket and we would go into one of the rooms where you wake the the dead people. Visitation rooms. The visitation rooms, we call them. And we would each take a couch and we would sleep on the couch now. I I love the visual of this. Okay. While the person who's dead is in the casket in the room. I love it a little less. So it wasn't like they were removed. We just went in and slept there. And there are lots of people in this little town of North Bay that are going to listen to this and go, I did too. Yeah. Because because we had our friends sleeping with us. So all of my brothers and sisters have friends in this city who can hear this podcast and go, oh my God, I have my memories. I was one of them. (laughs) Yes, they slept with us there. My brother Morris had a band. They used to play the band in the garage. So there's a whole group that will have memories of playing the garage. Um, But each of us brought our friends there. Mm -hmm. This was such a place, and I'll say in the community, uh, where where we slept. So anyway, the story goes that we did sleep there. We used to take the cushions and put them in little teepees, you know, like leaning against each other. And we'd run through the rooms and race and jump the, over them like this is fun. Um, little thing, like an obstacle course. We'd order pizza late at night and then we'd stand at the back door to see the face of the guy f- <laughs> from from Greco's <laughs> pizza. Just freak him out. <laughs> because he'd come to the back thinking, why am I going to a funeral home at two in the morning? <laughs> um yeah, there's there there are so many fun memories, but yeah, you're leaving out hide and seek. Because, oh yes, yes, we played hide and seek. So many of your friends who I now know today have said, "I used to hide in caskets with Karen Ann," because uh, Karen Ann is your name. Yes, for anyone who knew you back then, um, just how much they loved it as well. Yeah, we played hide and seek, and um, I. I hid in the caskets. Yeah, let's talk about that. And I just did a long distance treatment for a lady uh, calling from Ottawa last week. And when I told her, when she called to book an appointment with me, I didn't recognize her name. And she said, Karen Ann, I played hide and seek in the caskets with you. And I got in them too. And I went, oh my God, I didn't remember other people got in the caskets. And I remembered me getting in. And she said, I climbed in them too. (laughs) So here I am. That's wild. We're kids, and one of the best places to hide was in the caskets and close them. Okay, so stop there. Mm-hmm. Because, and you know why, um, and I think a lot of people are going to connect with this, you've just described a lot of people's worst fear. Yeah. It being inside a casket alive. Closed. Yes. So mm-hmm. um, what, what always burns in my mind from these stories uh, when you've told them is mm. how much those caskets were your safe place. Yes, Can they were. Can you talk to us about why? Wow. Well, as soon as you ask me that, Kelly, one of the first things I think about is how soft they were. They were lined with this beautiful material that you don't get on bed sheets. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not weird at all. It's true though. Yeah, they had nice soft cushions. <laughs> they were, oh, 
that's so funny. I remember the day when the first casket came in that had a light inside too. It was uh, a, yeah, there was a light. <laughs> anyway, so there was a light in it. But anyway, one of the things about getting in the caskets was that it was safe for me because the the spirit world was so alive that they would be walking around the funeral home with my friends chasing me. Okay, so, and I, I know I keep stopping you, but again, because you make a lot of assumptions and that's fair, but I kind of want to just rewind. So you've already talked about um, seeing people or seeing the dead people uh, rise from the caskets. And, yeah. And, pardon me, walk around with you. Yeah. Um, so is it fair to, to let everyone else know that it's not just in those situations? You saw them all the time. All the time. So when yeah. you're talking about running and jumping through these teepees and these forts, um, standing behind the delivery guy from Greco's, yeah. uh, it didn't stop for you. That's right. So as you're playing hide and seek with your friends, being, I'll say, very human, yeah. doing very human things, um, you're hiding in the casket and it becomes a safe haven because... I can get away from the dead people, too. Okay. I can get away from the dead people, and I can get away from the people that are alive, and I don't have to try and decipher which ones are alive and which ones are dead. Okay. Which I still have to do to this day. Right. So I always have to ask... Spirits. The spirits, if they're alive or dead. Or the real people. <laughs> sometimes the humans. <laughs> Wait, are you really here? <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, I know. You know I'm in it with you. Yeah. And getting inside the caskets, now that you're asking me about that, was probably one of the first times that I saw the sparkles. Mm -hmm. And the sparkles are the angels and the people who have died who don't want to hold on to their physical form, which was their old bodies, I'll call it. Mm -hmm. But they just take like a sparkly kind of form and their colors. But something about the sparkles is non-threatening and non-frightening. It right. makes them fun. It makes them um, uh, uh, bright. It just makes them okay. Because somehow, as a kid, you associated sparkles with something fun, which well, yeah. might have to do with fireworks or and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So um, these sparkles that you're seeing while you're in the casket closed, um, are they talking to you? Yeah. Okay, so because you're talking about being able to escape these oh. these people who've passed over. So it wasn't fully an escape, no. but it was put into a different, I'll say, context yeah. and put into a different form, literally, that was safe for you. Yes. That you didn't have to question. Is well, that fair? I, yeah, and I think, too, that adults couldn't take away from me. Right. No, yeah, your eyes just went really big there. Oh, I, I just understood it. I don't have Kleenex. So... I guess there's some part of us that doesn't want it taken away. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Not really, but... No, I, I know. Not really at all. Because it just talks to the fact that in every single one of us, how deep that goes, that you don't really want it taken away no matter what TV tells you or your parents, or the church, mm -hmm. or a teacher, or a psychiatrist, or your doctor, or anybody who thinks they have the right to, mm -hmm. whether it's a profession or what role they play. And I think it's interesting, and I don't, I don't want to get too far into it, but yeah. we've talked about the media very briefly being just this horrendous kind of thing that has illustrated what we do in a very uh, horrific kind of way. Yeah. Um, and yet, when we talk about that thing that we don't want to lose in childhood, yeah. um, 
perhaps that's why so many adults fall back in love with animated movies from yes. Disney and Pixar because they illustrate yeah. the things that were taken away from us. Yeah. And they make it safe again. Yeah. To to see, to laugh, to giggle, um, to believe. Yeah. And the superhero movies. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I think about some of the things where the media didn't take it away um, and where they did beautiful things with it too mm-hmm. um can we save that for another day yes okay okay another story uh, sure can i yeah of course uh, and and i i'm kind of trying to draw from the ones that you've you've given me so that we can kind of keep illustrating points because at one point or another my story comes in as well yeah um and and they parallel each other quite nicely um but what more do you want to share well, I, I remember a Saturday I worked at the funeral home. My parents would send my three youngest brothers and sisters to the funeral home to have lunch with me. And I, you know, maybe just to have some time at home without <laughs> nine kids. Uh-huh. <laughs> but um, so I would work on the Saturdays and Sundays and um, they would come and have lunch with me. And quite often they'd spend the whole day with me there because, I mean, you've got a great big building. Mm-hmm. And if there isn't a wake... You can fantasize and make it into a castle and Play mini sticks. Oh my God, we just played so many games. Now, mind you, I did have to work. I did have to do the vacuuming. Well, now I'm trying to justify my job, but anyway, <laughs> I'll stop. Those are other issues. Yes. Um. Anyway, I remember a woman who'd passed away, and I had to vacuum the funeral home and set up the flowers for the wake that night. She was in there, and she would not leave me alone. And okay, I, so we're talking about someone who's passed. Oh, just, yes, she's just dead. Just to be clear for everyone. Yes, yeah, she's dead. She's not a human bugging me. Those are easier to deal with. Um, oh. Are we sure? <laughs> Maybe are we not. sure about that one? <laughs> no, we'll discuss that again <laughs> later, too. Um, but anyway, the the deceased, the, the spirit woman, was, was following me around. And um, I remember playing with my brothers and sisters. And finally, at one point, she was she just would not let go that she had to give me these messages. And of course, I can't do anything about the messages. So I kept saying no, I wanted her to go away and she wouldn't. So at that point, she made me scared because she wouldn't stop. And to me, that was like crossing the boundary. Now, yeah, I want to ask a question about that. Because when you, you've transferred over into fear, which you didn't... I did. You didn't have when you were younger, talking about the, the little girl. Um, so was, was, it the, was it the message that changed? Or was it the fact that it was just relentless that made you fearful? The fact that I was told that I wasn't allowed to, and I think I was old enough, that I was starting to recognize that I had to push this back and away. Okay, cause, and, and I really want to clarify that for everyone, because... Um, so many people walk in to have their own session and they don't want anything bad. They don't want the bad messages or to be scared. And I'm clarifying this because it's not their message that's bad. It's not their message that's mm-hmm. fearful. It's how we interpret and it's what mm-hmm. it's what our experience is and how we filter through our experience. Um, just, yeah, I think kind of yeah, sets the, that's the stage. Per- perfect. So anyway, I grabbed my sister Allison, who is six years younger than me and uh, so I was 12 she'd be six years old and we ran all the way up the stairs into the lounges you dragged oh I dragged and we went well you'd have to ask her for the accuracy of that but I do remember the two of us going up into that bathroom and there was a a vanity in the woman's washroom and we hid underneath it for a long time until my dad came to the funeral home couldn't find us and found us hiding under the vanity so (laughs) so at six years old was Allison aware of the reason she was hiding under a vanity or was this just like trust my sister i'm here with her 
that kind of thing. I have no idea. We'd have to ask her. Okay. Honestly, or I just not let go of that grip. <laughs> I have, I really don't know. Okay. Um, what what that was, and I don't remember it, and I wouldn't want to say it without accuracy. Okay, so, uh, fair enough. So, um, did the woman follow you into the bathroom? No. Okay. <laughs> Which is funny <laughs> because you and I have referred to the washroom as our office sometimes. <laughs> Uh, for clarity, yeah, clarity purposes, and just at that alone time. Yeah, yeah, I know how busy the bathroom is in our house, but yeah. um, that that could be another podcast. <laughs> our bathroom it got weird real fast. <laughs> it did, <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, so yeah, that's a that's another story. Um, I don't know where are we going. You were just talking about the woman. So your dad ended up coming to get you. Yeah. And I, you know what? To this day, I cannot recall what happened after he came and got us out of the bathroom. I don't remember ever telling him why I was hiding. I don't remember why I made Allison hide with me. I okay. don't. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So then I think um, one of the questions that I want to ask, just to kind of lead the um, the conversation it, or guide it, I'll say, is um, can we go into the nightmares? Yeah, because now we've talked about you working there. We've talked about the kind of um, instances that you've you've uh, experienced with, I'll say, relentless energies. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk to me about the, the sleep world. Well, I don't ever remember any time of my life not having nightmares. And I remember all through my childhood in high school, boy, and their eight brothers and sisters and mom and dad to verify that that the nightmares were almost every single night, and sometimes two and three times a night. And they were always about dead people talking to me. Mm-hmm. I didn't just have this struggle in the reality of my awake world, having parents have a funeral home and working there and sleeping there and eating there, but it was in my dream world. And they would come into my dreams and always be trying to give me messages, trying to talk to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do remember in the dreams quite often, I, I'll say at the beginning where I could talk back with them, there was, oh. a, there could be conversation, but eventually, and that might coincide with when society said I wasn't allowed, that it turned into a fear. As age kind of progressed. Yes. Yeah. And as, as I was verbal and saying that I'm having this dream or I'm at the funeral home and this is what's happening, that those worlds came together where the fear from the human world when I'm awake, seeps into my dream state and creates another fear. Mm -hmm. So that instead of being able to dream about this and it be a safe place or neutral one at the very least, this became a place where I'm still attacked. Mm -hmm. And that I wake up screaming. But the thing about that is the incredible gifts my mother gave me in trying to problem solve it. She was phenomenal in that my mom, well, because she slept with me. So, I mean, she had a purpose here too. She wanted to get back into her own bed. She had to problem solve. <laughs> Good for her. So, I mean, my mom was resilient in, in trying to come up with a million different strategies to say, geez, in your dream, could you not tell yourself you're dreaming? Mm-hmm. Could you not, could you not um, punch a wall? Could you not lie up against the bed when you go to sleep? And if you're having a bad dream, try and make your body roll over. My mom gave me a million tools to come through the realities where she tried to help me connect in the dream state that I could wake myself up. Mm -hmm. Without my mom's toolbox, 
I do not know how I would have survived this and become a living, breathing, healthy medium. Well, and, and I'll throw in there a healthy mother yourself, because like I said, our, our lives parallel as well. So that comes right into my story later on. It's something that I can say my mom did from the bottom of her heart um, to help me, to help herself. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine what it's like for all these moms that have all these kids that have the night terrors, nightmares, um, dreams of whatever you want to call that, because in reality, they never should have been called that. This was just another reality. Mm-hmm. But if you've got human beings saying this is bullshit or crap or they don't believe in it, they have created someone else's nightmare. Mm-hmm. They have created someone else's and walked away and taken no responsibility for the poop they've put in somebody else's life. You're censoring now? You've said all the other things. You're choosing to censor now? <laughs> I got angry too. <laughs> no. <laughs> but I it's did. All good. I got mad about it because, because it really does speak to the fact that when we create our own belief systems and we, we, are, we are mean about them, or we, we want to project them onto other people mm-hmm. that you can create somebody else's nightmare. Living nightmare. Yes. Um, and, and I kind of want to jump in there too, because we talked about your, your dad's intention at one point in teaching you and walking you through a process so the, of, of education. And I in no way want to defend your parents mm-hmm. um, to, to say that, you know, anyone was in the wrong because you and I've talked about the fact that they tried to protect you, right? So when they did take you to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist said, this isn't normal, this is, I think they, it was schizophrenia back then. Um, he said, go out and get a real job, stop working at the funeral home. The parents did the, be- did the best they could with the information that they were given to ensure that you weren't locked into a facility. That's right. And not that that was the right answer necessarily, the way they went about it, but the intention behind it. Oh, definitely. I remember the drive home. Um, My dad, I don't even know that he told my mom he took me there because I called him from the funeral home. I was 19 years old and there was a spirit in the funeral home that wouldn't leave me alone. But now I'm 19 and I don't know what to do with it. I've had 19 years of shutting this down Mm -hmm. and I called him. And of course, now I have, I've buried some of the memories too. So I'm 19 and I don't understand why all of a sudden dead people are talking to me and I've got to turn the lights off at night. I've got to blow out the candles. I'm all by myself at 11 o'clock at night in a pitch black funeral home. And uh, all of a sudden the spirit world is coming alive and I'm 19. Mm -hmm. And I have no one to speak to about it. So I called my dad and said, can you come and get me? And I remember the next day he took me to a psychiatrist Uh, where I was supposed to just say what my problem was. So I just said what my problem was in two seconds flat, thinking nothing, like didn't know what I was doing. Just said, you know, some dead person talking to me. And the psychiatrist took one look at my father and said, that's called schizophrenia. She'll go into the North Bay Regional Hospital, the OH, they called it, Ontario Hospital, up on the highway, uh, or the Nut House, or whatever terms they had for that at that time. And um, that I wouldn't see my brothers and sisters again, that I, this was, this is what I was told. The psychiatrist said, if, if she doesn't stop talking like this, she'll never see her family and her friends again. So you, I had eight brothers and sisters. You just, I just shut up. Mm-hmm. You shut up for a long time with that kind of a threat. And yet 
that psychiatrist didn't admit you himself. It was it was almost like a warning. Is that fair to say? Yes. Like figure this out yourself or this is going to be the result. Yes. So you might say in some really backwards training way that he was trying to shut me up for my own good. I'll say your safety. Yes. You, you would have been drugged for life. Yes. At that point. Okay. S so w once again, um, where we think we're doing something that's good for somebody and maybe we really are at that particular time. Mm -hmm. This is back in the 1979, 1980, that I'm told, be quiet again for your own good. Mm -hmm. hmm. Thank God times have changed. I'll say slightly. Uh, slightly because that's yeah. not true. There's no, no. still a I'm, lot of people in those I facilities. I in there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So... Uh, I'm trying to think where we were before that though, because we were talking about your parents and just their intention, um, mm -hmm. not necessarily coming from a place of malice, um, but mm -hmm. maybe their own fear for their daughter and wanting to keep you and still, still have you, I'll say functioning in society. Right. And I think there are still parents out there right now and partners and whatever professionals that still want to keep people safe. And, uh, and yet just because it wasn't your intention doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Yeah. So... The amount of hurt, yeah, the amount that you have to um, shove down and shove in that becomes my backache, that becomes my sore left hip. Can, can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. So you were 19. Mm-hmm. I'm doing the math. It's simple, easy math. Your boyfriend at this time, you called dad to bring you home from work. Was it ever brought up with your, your boyfriend at that, at that period of time? So I'm asking because I know it's my father, so... Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, ask me that again. When you called, when you called your grandfather, or sorry, when you called grandpa, your dad, um, to come pick you up in that, in that one situation, uh, brought to the psychiatrist's office, you were dating my dad at that point. So was it ever discussed with him what, what happened that day? Never. No. Okay. He never knew that. Okay. Which probably, no, no, I will say honestly and clearly now, would affect the mental health and the emotional health of the marriage. Right. Well, of course. Yes. Yeah, that would have... So, no, so no divorce would ever be able to be blamed on him in every aspect, which I think is important for people to hear. Hmm. Okay. Because you have to deny a part of yourself. So I think uh, what I want to do is fast forward now, but you're going to need to drag me back because I know you haven't shared all of your stories and I'm sure those will come out eventually. Um, so are you okay if I fast forward? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, so from 19 till your forties. Yes. Uh, what happened in your forties? I know I'm just prompting. Hmm? In your forties, you started. Okay. Oh, L let me back up. Okay. I, I vividly remember in your marriage because it was a, it was a family game. Um, the four of us, my brother included, we'd be in a car and we'd, you know, drive by certain people on the oh, road. Oh, yeah. And dad, out of, out of, I'll say good fun, would say, let's, let's pretend, you know, we know that's their story. What's their story? And so we would all make up hypothetical situations about the people that we would see, um, where they were going, where they were coming from, who their family was. Um, how did that change your life? Well, I knew everything about the people in the other vehicle. And, but at that time, I, if you don't get a validation, you don't know that. So you think you're playing the game. Okay. You go, go on. Sorry. 
Except that eventually, sometimes you would end up finding out, or I would end up finding out that it was accurate. I, I'm also going to throw in there because the three of us would make up funny situations, and you would make up you'd come serious up with one ones. a serious I'll, I'll say quote unquote boring, and we'd all look at you like why why don't you want to play? That's true. <laughs> so you'd say, well, no, that's really what's going on. Yeah, and I think I started catching on. Uh, when when my own gifts started developing, um, that's really hard. Yeah. That is so hard, Kelly. Because now you're talking about the dynamics in the marriage too. Well, that's going to happen. Yeah, and, and he doesn't <sighs> listen, so <laughs> <laughs> he won't listen to these podcasts. So that's okay. But that that's part of what's difficult in the partnership. Then, when you're not allowed to be who you are, and the other person doesn't know who you are because right. because of that situation. So this is never a blaming on him but that he wouldn't be able to to validate it for me, but even to let me even have an inch to believe I could be true. Right. So because my, my stories were boring or because they were, I'll say, not nice sometimes. Right. I, you guys might say, oh, they're going to the midway. And somebody else might say, no, they're going to the park. I would say they're having a fight. Right. <laughs> and they're fighting about his mother and not coming this weekend. And everybody would look at me like, well, aren't you the sourpuss of the bunch? Mm -hmm. And why are you dragging down the story or the day? So there would be that and then where I would feel horrible about what I'd said. Or that why am I such a what such poo-pooing? Like, or why does your head go there? Yeah, why does my head go there? Yeah. Or why can't I think of funny stories like my husband? Or why can't I be as funny as, as the kids? So I would go into the space of putting myself down because I can't keep up to the group in the way that the group is functioning, mm -hmm. which speaks to the fact that I've never been able to my whole life. No, and it's beautiful. It's perfect. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And I hope that other people who are similarly in that same situation that they can't keep up to the group, that you just heard that. There's a, there, there are reasons why you can't. But when you're feeling alone and isolated and can't get validations, you have to call Karen and Kelly Sarlow. <laughs> Are we allowed to plug our own shows? <laughs> yes, we can, because it's our freaking podcast. <laughs> so, and that's why we love what we do, because we can plug you back in. Yeah. Go on. Um, okay, so we fast forward into your 40s. We're talking about stories. Uh, and then through, I'll say one of your normal jobs, um, you started to discover therapeutic touch. And I remember because I went on that journey with you. So, and that's kind of where the ball got rolling again. Well, I worked in a doctor's office, an atropathic doctor. Yeah. And um, she had some gifts of her own, I'll say. Mm -hmm. Really intuitive. And I uh, thank God. And very, and very open-minded. Yeah. And um, her mom was doing therapeutic touch. Yeah. And I was at work one day. Well, first I should say that working in her office was very difficult for me because she would have patients come in and I would know everything that was going on about the patients. And and to preface that, you you were a secretary yes. in that office. I'm, and I'll say office manager because you did a lot of things around the uh, the office itself. But they would come in, they would sit and wait for their appointments and you were the person they spoke to. Yes, waiting so, for the doctor. Right. And I would say things that were bang on and accurate to the person. But not, not having looked in their file, not having no, right, no background. No. The things that they might be coming in for that they haven't even told the doctor yet. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, so anyway, I was invited to 
um, participate in therapeutic touch after I had experienced it once because her mom did it for me when I was in severe menstrual pain. Mm -hmm. I had uh, dysmenorrhea, I guess it's called, Mm -hmm. but meaning menstrual cramping. And mine was extreme. And um, she did therapeutic touch on me for about 10 minutes and I had zero pain. Mm -hmm. I had spent 40 some years or no, I'll say 30 years at least every month in really bad menstrual pain. And she did a 10-minute treatment and totally alleviated my symptoms better than any Advil or any Tylenol or prescription drug I had ever had in my life. She got rid of it entirely. Mm -hmm. And I needed to know how the hell to do that for myself because, well, when it's monthly, you have to deal with it. So I went to, to Therapeutic Touch and learned about energy. And it was the first time in my life that a school environment, I'll say, a learning experience formalized, made sense. The it, school of therapeutic touch, yeah. Yes. Okay. Where therapeutic touch did not conflict with my inner knowings. Mm-hmm. Whereas the whole school system through school and college never made sense to me because teachings always conflicted with each other. Mm-hmm. Then they didn't make sense. But you had to believe because you had to pass the test, right? I'll say accept. You had to accept it. Yes, you had to. Well, you had to regurgitate it to pass. You didn't have to accept a damn thing. But if you regurgitated, you passed, right. which is a crazy way to educate a person. Are you angry? A little. <laughs> okay. Just a little. Um, no, a lot. You can I know, hear it. I know. But anyway. Um, so therapeutic touch made sense to me. The, how energy moves, how it flows, what it does in the body. All of the teachings of really it's metaphysics and it's quantum physics. Mm -hmm. And my world opened up at that point, but also so did my gifts because now I was running energy. Mm -hmm. And so the intuitive gifts just went through the roof. Could you imagine having all of these things shoved into a can, all those little sparkles? It's like that that little, um, what's that horrible can that you open up and all the worms pop out? Oh, yeah, <laughs> except happiness pops out. <laughs> oh, happiness, sadness, yeah, grieving. That, that release. The, the release that comes when you're able to actually be yourself again is complex. And I mm. think it's one of the things that people fear about opening the can, mm. whether it's grief or whatever it is. Well, you, you can't because you can't just open the can a little bit and let one worm out. <laughs> no, you don't. As much as people try, no, by the way. The whole damn thing. The whole thing opens. So you can feel the joy at the same time you feel the horror of mm-hmm. what's happened to you or the anger that you feel that people in their own space of needing so much control or ignorance have controlled you. Yeah. Um, and how deep that system goes, right? Yeah, so off it came. Yeah. Off it came with therapeutic touch, which is exactly why energy healing is seen by so many professions as a threat. Yeah. Because it opens everything. And so you spill into a mess. And that mess can be absolutely the most beautiful thing you have ever been. Well, chaos. Everything everything beautiful is born out of chaos. Yes. And but if 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 I can't control your chaos, then I'm out of control. Mm-hmm. So that scares the teacher or the partner or the fill in yeah. the blank okay so so back to your journey then so therapeutic touch i'll call part two step one <laughs> is that fair yeah okay um and i ask if that's fair not to be annoying to to listeners but um to make sure that i'm never putting words in your mouth you and you and i both know how we respect each other yes. in confirming things instead of speaking for one another 
Um, so part two, step one. What was step two? Quantum touch. Okay. So you took some more courses. I took more courses and I read every flipping book I could. I think I must have read like 500 books. Mm-hmm. I, and I remember. It, I remember the library. Yeah. At a part time in my, in my marriage, um, I had 19 jobs. So, and I quit all 19. And I went from job to job when I wasn't being respected by the person that hired me or worked with me, for me, in whatever way, I quit. Um, and I moved on. So and, you, had, and you got a haircut and you bought yourself flowers. I did. I and remember you used to come through the door and you'd have a brand new haircut with a thing of tulips in your hand. And I'd say, okay, so you quit. Now what? Yes. It's so true. Me and my tulips. Well, and, and you know what? And I used to mock you um, from a happy place, though, because you'd come home, you'd have your cry. And then you'd move forward. Yeah. And I always knew that even though you quit and walked away from something, which was an act of self-love in and of itself, yeah. um, that you went out and you did something gentle for yourself too, which was the haircut and, and the flowers. Yes. And then I'd go find, I'd have to go try and find another job. I'd have to do the resume, pound the pavement 19 times. Um, I guess it speaks a little bit to to the fact that I had quite the journey of, of learning to respect myself, to be able to set up boundaries for other people. We often go into a work environment and we lose all of that because of a paycheck. Mm-hmm. And employers are notorious for thinking they have the right to. And employees are notorious for taking it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how much that the new generation would agree with that, but that, yeah, okay. And my generation too, far more people yeah. are getting laid off and fired and quit uh, because we can, and mm-hmm. because there, are, uh, because in my day you were called a fly-by-night. Anybody my age is going to know the term fly-by-night, and it was not a good one. If you were a fly-by-night, it meant you couldn't hold down a job, and there was something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Not that you were educating yourself or being self-respectful, or that you were learning and growing, but there was something. And this was it's a, it was a very negative connotation. If you weren't able to have your pension and your benefits. And retire in 30 years. Well, and yeah, and you still hear that today. Yes. But I won't have a pension. Okay, yeah. so um, you kept you kept educating yourself. I did. Every book I could think of. Carolyn Miss, Christiane Northrup, Deepak Chopra, John Bradshaw. I could list authors as from here to yeah. eternity. So then um, I, I want to go in the right direction with this, but I'm, I'm struggling because this is where it starts to overlap. Yeah. With our stories. So are you comfortable if we kind of go back and forth then? Yes. Okay. Cause I was with you when you got invited to your therapeutic touch. I went, I went with you and, and friends, right? We, yes. you, I had a girlfriend and her mom has come as well. Um, so we took that course and I remember at one point when you were in the naturopathic's office, um, her offering you treatment space to start doing therapeutic touch for others. Yes. And I remember the day you came home and said that you were holding someone's feet to ground them, which is part of part of the job. Um, and you don't remember? No. Nope. Oh, okay. Go. Uh, you were holding their feet to ground them, and all of a sudden you saw a man standing behind them, and you kind of jumped, and you were like, oh, what do I do? And so you actually said to them, did your father pass away? And that, that woman looked at you and went, uh, yeah, why? And you said, well, did he look like this? Uh, yeah, why? And you were like, um, he's standing behind you. Am I allowed to say that? And that was when you, I'll say you first channeled, uh, in a, in a space that ended up being safe. Um, 
where it came into just your therapeutic touch practice, which if you're, if anyone out there is seeking therapeutic touch, don't expect medium. <laughs> uh, this, this I'll say was a one of, um, you, you, you channeled your first, first dead person. Yeah. I totally forgot that. I did not. You came home like what the shit just happened. <laughs> you know, it brings up memories too, Kelly, of w- when these things first started. Like, you know, the first time that I would do that, do that, and I would say to my husband at the time, I saw somebody's dead dad, and he and he would correct me and tell me no, I didn't. He w- or he mm-hmm. would say he would say what I should have said, right? Instead yes. of of um, what the person did say to me. So if the person did, the dead person, dead dad said, tell my daughter, I liked, um, duck hunting. He would say, well, why would you tell them that? You should have said, you know, that her dad loved her. You should have told her the next time, tell them, tell them this. And I, there's a conflict right there. It's like, what? Why would I say that? Why would I do that? He said he liked duck hunting. Yeah. (laughs) Because then if I went in and I said to that person, your dad says he loves you. She might say, my dad would never have said something like that to me. My dad raped me. My Mm -hmm. dad abused me. That's not my dad. He liked duck hunting. (laughs) Yeah. 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 He's, he liked duck hunting and I would go son of a gun. I knew that. And now I can't tell her that because I went and said something I, someone told me to say instead of just giving the message. Big lesson. I know I've been there. I learned that one. (laughs) Um, okay. So I, I remember, and and this, I guess the stories are going to get a little bit messy I'll say in, in some kind of a sense here because I wasn't in on or privileged to those conversations between the two of you mm-hmm. um meaning my dad and, and yourself uh I remember your excitement I remember mm-hmm. you saying someone affirmed so your first affirmations of things that you saw well and that's that that brings me to a really good point because when you get somebody who shuts you down I then decided in my 40s that I was tired of it and I went to find you or girlfriends where when I could share that, they became supportive. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the turning point when it went from the psychiatrist or the parent or the the, the ex-husband who says no or you should do this or you should do that, that I come to a point in my life and say, you know what? No. And I get to say no on some level where then I get to value my own self and the person who's passed over and the person that's in front of me. I'll now call that my triangle. Mm-hmm. So the alive person, my client, the dead person and me creates a triangle that says there has to be authenticity and integrity and has to have that where I'm only going to repeat it word for word. Mm-hmm. Right, because now, as we know, in both of our practices, we don't interpret messages, which is our policy. Right. So, can I ask you a personal question? Yeah. Like, I have to preface that. Um, When you're talking about that being your turning point, is that where, where in your mind, you and I became partners? Yes. Because I'm trying to think back, and and I mean, in my childhood mind, let's face it, you were on a pedestal for sure, um, because of the way you raised me, but a pedestal meaning that we're on different levels than each other. Right. And so is that the point where you took your child and make that made them your equal? Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. (laughs) 
That's really exciting. Okay. My heart just filled up. Say it again. Which part? Everything. Oh, that that at that point when you found that support in someone who was younger or you you played a certain role with, you either came off a pedestal or I came out of that lower lower hierarchy and became an equal. So we were both learning from each other. We were both supporting each other um, in an equal kind of partnership. So I closed my eyes when Kelly said that. And I could see beautiful colors in front of me all meshing. And I could see red and orange and yellow. And then they all fused together and I saw white. Just white light. Right. And I asked her to repeat that so I could close my eyes and watch what happens when you stop being just a human being and you become a spirit human. I want to say thank you. I love you. I love you too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Cause I don't, I don't know that that will sink in for people right away mm-hmm. unless they have experienced something where they feel, a, I'll say a true partnership and it doesn't have to be like we've just said with, with um, a, a significant other, uh, but to understand when someone is right there on your level with you um, in their truth and in their integrity. And I think people try and word that in some new age vocabulary sometimes to say that that's your twin flame or your soulmate, but they don't really know what they're looking for or how that feels, what it might look like. Um, But they want to throw those terms around in hope, in a hope. Um, I don't even know where to go from here. I'm I'm think I'm skipping ahead to being in university now, but is there somewhere that you want to go? Um No, it's okay cuz it can okay. it can go all over the place. Okay. And as long as people have an on-off button, they can decide <laughs> <laughs> always uh, when they turn us on and off. And yeah. and uh, you and I just get to have fun. Have fun, and they can replay it and do whatever they want with all of this. Okay, so, so as you're you're kind of going through your first sessions where you're channeling, you had more and more situations like this in your in your treatments. I'll say with therapeutic touch, where you asked permission to mm-hmm. say, you know, can I talk about the dead person in the room? Um, and you would come home and you would say, you would teach me. I remember this. You would teach me. I always ask permission. I always make sure I don't cross a boundary because they came for me or to me for a certain reason. And I have to make sure that I'm not violating that. And I remember these harsh terms, but being illustrated in such a beautiful way because they were being respected. Yes, because violation doesn't just happen when you hit somebody or when you rape somebody. There's so many ways or are energetic ways of violating. Mm-hmm. And that's something that has stuck with me in building my own business uh, is the way that you, I guess, from your your father right back to the very beginning of your your stories and what he taught you about boundaries and respect. Um, That's definitely carried over. Okay, so now my fast forward because I've gone through therapeutic touch and I'm off to university at this point. So which was, I'll say, exciting and horrific at the same time. Is that fair? Yeah. Because uh, exciting for me brand new world, 
in, in Ottawa, which I've always referred to Ottawa as the love of my life. Four hour drive away from North Bay, just and, so everybody knows. And, and a rocky one at that. <laughs> it's not a nice highway. Um, and, and I was homesick. You, you've always been my person. You were always my best friend. I wasn't a huge social person. I got bullied uh, in school, actually throughout school since grade seven. Um, so walking away from that, walking into this brand new world and feeling not disconnected from you, but just at a distance. And I remember being in my dorm. I called home like, what, eight times a day? I was so homesick. Um, you walked me to and from each class. Um, and you would talk to me about your sessions. You would talk to me about your treatments that you were doing for your clients. And at one point, I don't know when, um, you would say, you'll never guess what happened. You'll never guess what happened. And I would say, well, let me. So there was a certain point in our conversations where I would say, did you see this? Did they say this? Was the treatment about this? And we started recognizing that we were seeing the same thing. I'm getting, mm-hmm. I'm getting excited. <laughs> <laughs> just because it, go, it takes me back to my beginning, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I've skipped over my entire childhood just for the sake of um, kind of time here. But um, so I started seeing the same things that you were seeing, which I'll say even furthered your affirmations, right? So yeah. even though, even if your clients were saying, yes, yes, that's accurate, there was another person, another human being mm-hmm. who said, I see it too. It's real. And that helps when the client says, no, it's not real. Okay. So can we illustrate that? Because some yes. people would be like, well, why would a client say that? Oh, um, so, to lie. Right. So if the, if the dead father's coming through and saying, my daughter's a bully, she bullies her husband. Yeah. And the woman goes, nope, that's not true. My husband's the jerk. <laughs> that's common. <laughs> we think we're bad at our job. Yep. We think, oh, how come I'm not getting a clear message? How come I'm not connected to this person? Well, they're basically saying to you right to your face that you don't, you're not doing your job and that you don't have the gifts you say you do. Right. And so you have another person who's in another city who had no idea you were even doing a treatment that day, affirm all the things that you saw and said. Yeah. What kind of connection was that for you? Oh, fantastic. Because, and and on so many levels, because it's you and I connecting because we love each other. Mm -hmm. It's you and I connecting, I'll say intuitively. Mm -hmm. So not just as humans, but as intuitive beings. It's fantastic because... I'm right. <laughs> I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. <laughs> because that's what you want when you're when you are psychic. Everything is based on you're right. You ha- and and that's those what, affirmations. Those affirmations. Yeah. That's what people come to you for. That's what you want to know that you're good at what you do. So when people come to you, when you're psychic and when you ha- use these gifts. And they lied to you to keep them, for whatever reason they lie to well, you. to protect their ego mainly. Yes. Or their marriage or ego. what their ego, you know, whatever. Their paychecks, all this different stuff. Ego. Okay. <laughs> it's <laughs> all encompassing. Yeah, You're getting this? Yeah, I know. I totally am. <laughs> um, that they, they are willing to slash you, knock you down, put you down again. Go back to psychiatrist. Go back to all of these things from that that I've gone through where you're not allowed to. They're basically doing it to you all day, every day, again, over and over again. But this time they pay you. But yes, this time they pay me. That, and, I find that baffling. Yep. And I and I don't mean that from a rude place or disrespectful be, because it really does baffle me that people will come and deny everything but still hand the money to you. Yes, and, and know say they're lying. You. Yeah, and know they're lying. 
Yeah. And walk out the door. And the first thing what they want to do to say to other people too, is that I'm not accurate. They want to be able to say that I didn't get it right. I'm no good. Because they get to go back into their world, which is just a whole messy game that they've brought into my reality. Mm-hmm. So you come along, back to you, and you are the one that says, oh, did you get her dad? And he, he said she was a bully. And I get to go, oh my God, I was right. Mm-hmm. That is my moment of I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. And I say it like that because of the joy, yeah. because of the relief that I feel that is absolutely tremendous and and i'm gonna i'm gonna say just to clarify the relief and the joy isn't the fact that you just heard that she's a bully no you're rejoicing for the fact that i listened i listened to the other side i got the message clearly and even though it was denied i did my job i honored that person that father who came through yes in hopes to bring a message to his daughter so that she could do something healthy with it. Yeah. Um, you've done your part. Yes. And that that is all that is my part. That is the healthy boundary. Because what that person does with it to be able to go on with their life, whether it's a healthy choice or an unhealthy choice, is none of my business. Right. Okay. So back to the stories. <laughs> Is that fair? Yeah. Um, Because I'm just thinking we're we're talking about where I'm I'm at um, in, yeah, in university this time. Okay. So we're seeing the same things. We're in different cities. I'm sitting in my dorm room thinking, what the hell am I doing at university? Oh, wait. What are you studying (laughs) in university? (laughs) You have to tell them this. Psychology. (laughs) (laughs) Which, let's face it, there was no humanity in what I studied. Um, And that's not a knock at the university in particular. That's just a knock at the education system, I'll say, um, and how they structure that. But there was so much more humanity in channeling. There was so much more integrity about behaviors and observations um, and the truth to human interactions in what I got to hear from the other side and how they see us uh, and in how just listening to other people's spirits because we talk to people who have not crossed over. We tap into those those spirits who say, I'm a bully when they're the person on the table and we get to say, is this correct? Um, so you know, I'm sitting there thinking, what the hell am I studying if this all comes naturally and I can just go home? <laughs> um, but society says you need... You need a job. Paper. A pension. <laughs> um, yeah, so... I don't know. Long story short, I, I, I got the paper uh, and I don't regret that just because of where um, my life was taken in Ottawa to the people I was I was introduced to because um, my story, uh, not necessarily about the gifts themselves, but I, I dropped out. I dropped out of university and I started working at Lululemon in um, in the Rideau Center and I was introduced to I'll say some of the most wonderful people that I've ever met uh, based on their belief systems, based on the things that that company teaches. And I'm not here to, to, to plug them by any means, but Chip Wilson, founder of the company, had his shit together. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't want to talk about why he was outed, but whatever. Um, the things that he instilled in his employees were outstanding. And I remember calling home those eight times a day, uh, trying to teach you everything that I was learning from those books and the culture of that, that, um, that environment. Chip Wilson can be thanked over and over again in this house for saving our lives. Uh, Because 
when things got rocky, or I, I'll say not got rocky, but um, the truth is coming out about your marriage. Mm-hmm. The truth is coming out about your gifts. Mm-hmm. I was on the other end of that phone saying, be you. Mm-hmm. I, I was delivering all of that authenticity that I was learning through the job um, and saying, kind of putting it in your face and making you own your... I'll say take responsibility for your own life. And that is what Chip brought to us. Yeah. Was personal responsibility for choice and awareness. And I, I so loved that uh, in learning how to set goals through this company, I he gave us what's called a buy when, which is just another word for a deadline. Um, but deadlines have a school anxiety about them, I'll say. So I got this new new term called a buy when. And you would talk about things that you wanted to do and accomplish that you hadn't dreamt of doing before. Um, for, for yourself because you were always mom you were always in that role of of wife or caretaker and so you would say things and I would say well by when and you'd look at me and you go what what are you talking about through webcam that old- frustrated the petunias out of me yeah and so I would say by when and you had to set this deadline for yourself and follow through and I was going to say I'll check up on you on that day oh and you would oh my god you did and then it got to the point where we were talking about the marriage not working and you um, you know, wanting to leave for, for your own reasons. And that's your privacy. Um, and you saying, you know, I I need out and me saying, okay, just take me with you. (laughs) Right. That was my only wish. Yeah. And I just, I just wanted to be where you were. Right. Because living in that authenticity is, is all that I wanted to be able to develop my own gifts, to be myself. And I hope people heard that when they when you said you just wanted to be living in that authenticity, mm-hmm. because that is what drove the end of the relationship was my desire to be in my own authenticity. Not to change him, not no. to right, just to be on your own journey and That's recognize right. that he wasn't in it. That's right. And it was not out of meanness towards him, but simply my desire to be me. And to recognize that you weren't being you. Yeah. So, and then that's huge. So in my journey of dropping out and being in this company brought an entirely different dynamic to our family when I said, okay, if you want out, what's your, what's your buy when? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I remembered saying to you, what are you going to do about it? Oh God. Yes. You would talk about your fears. You would talk about all the reasons you couldn't leave. Oh yeah. Financial. There were lots of, I'll say stupid reasons. Well, excuses. No. Yes, excuses. excuses. And so yeah. I would say, okay, well, what are you going to do about it? And that, again, put that, that onus back on you to figure out or problem solve the things that you didn't want to problem solve in the past. Now, now I want to draw attention to the fact that you just said problem solve. And that was one of the things that I said was taken away from me. Yep. When I was a very small child by adults in my life that took away my ability to process. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. Because the process in itself involves using your intuition, involves knowing yourself, involves being able to speak your truth and all of that and being heard and all of got got taken out of my life. And I'll say also to be able to see your own options because you weren't given options. You were told what to do. That's right. Instead of how to think. And so here, here at this point in our lives where we're, I'm 49, we're sitting there saying, okay, what do you want to do about it? I'm asking you to problem solve. Uh, and, and volunteering to be a part of that solution uh, with you or for you or however you want to word that. Um, to become healthy. And the marriage came apart. Yes. Which is good. Which is the chaos. And and I get to say that, that it was good as the kid. Because so many people say, I'm staying for the kids. Mm. 
and let's do another podcast on that. Let write that down. <laughs> yeah, that's that's your excuse, but so, that was my excuse to in, stay for kids. And so in my journey of discovering myself and and my gifts were handed to you as well. I'll say your freedom to be you, your your options, your opportunities, however you want to look at that, um, to walk to walk away from something that was unhealthy, um, and start over. Start mm-hmm. fresh, start building from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. And this time with a foundation, which mm-hmm. is something that isn't, fa- I'll say isn't fair to the 20 year old male and female that we were yeah. back in 1982, mm-hmm. because that foundation for me wasn't there in that partnership. Mm-hmm. So if there's no foundation for one person in it, it's I don't know how there's any success for it. Okay. So you leave. Mm-hmm. We build our gifts. You <laughs> build your own practice. So and that, that was another thing I wanted to talk about is that you started doing your treatments and were referred to by these clients who were seeing you. So you you hadn't originally thought that you were going to start a business. No. Um, a legit write a receipt, have an HST number of business <laughs> and here you are how many years later um i'll say with a very successful business mm-hmm. a very beautiful clientele base who seem very dedicated to you yeah um and the majority of your work being word of mouth referrals which speaks volumes for this community of north bay and and far beyond that because you've yes. got people calling i mean numbers i don't even freaking recognize far beyond seven digits um mm-hmm. in mumbai india Mm-hmm. In in crazy places I can't even dream of traveling to, Malaysia, so Australia, all over the world. Yeah, and that word that word of mouth being, I'll say some people will put all that on the internet, and I will say no. There, part of that is internet, but that really is what you refer to as word of mouth, where somebody here in North Bay tells a family fr- friend or whatever in, in another country. Uh, by phone or when they're visiting and how that has just blossomed it's not all internet it's part of it mm-hmm. but that people share their experience which brings the next person to me mm-hmm. because of how it's changed their life how the person tells the story of their experience which isn't always necessarily the same as my experience with them mm-hmm. in that session I could have a completely different experience with them but it's what they got out of it mm-hmm. In that day, because as yeah. we know, you get different things out of it as things or as time allows you to process uh, yes. your session. Just like I'm sure it does for them as they have time to process. Mm-hmm. Um, do you need to stop? I need I need to stop. So we're going to pause because I, I'm hungry. <laughs> okay, uh, so she's going to go eat and we are going to return with part two later on. Thanks for listening. <laughs>